Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you so much for tuning in to another edition of Stand Up For The Truth. We've got an awesome topic today about educating your kids and the importance of families and the Christian worldview. We'll get to that as soon as we open in prayer. Father, thank you for giving us another day. Thank you for the truth of the resurrection and for many of us, the renewed hope that we have because of celebrating what we know is true all year round and that Jesus died for us He also was buried but raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And because of him and our trust in Christ alone, we have hope, the hope of eternal life in your presence, Lord, forever. We thank you for that. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for just re-energizing so many of us. Even though we weren't able to meet as family uh, in our churches, we know that uh, in spirit we were together and we were seeking you and we pray in Jesus' name that you would continue to guide us one day at a time. Strengthen your body, Lord, and help us to minister to people in need all around us. Even though we're not in our churches, Lord, we can be out doing the work of the church. So help us, God. Give us wisdom and strengthen us according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm excited to have today's guest on, Israel Wayne. Uh, He's an author and a conference speaker, director of Family Renewal, And he has a passion for defending the Christian faith and has written a lot about defending the worldview, always being ready to give an answer for the hope that we have, promoting a biblical worldview. He's the author of these books, Homeschooling from a Biblical Worldview, Full-Time Parenting, which is a guide to family-based discipleship. Also, another book, Questions God Asks, Questions Jesus Asks, and Pitch in a Fit, Overcoming Angry and Stressed Out Parenting. Also, Education, Does God Have an Opinion? And the one we're going to talk about mostly today, Answers for Homeschooling, the Top 25 Questions Critics Ask. And uh, we're just so thankful. Israel and his wife uh, live in Michigan. And from what I understand, they're raising 10 children. Israel Wayne, welcome to Stand Up for the Truth. Thank you, David. It's a blessing to be on your show. Well, I read a lot there. How do you have time to do all that you do, especially with 10 kids? Well, it's a, it's a blessing that uh, I get to work from home, and we homeschool our children. So what's interesting is, is we're recording this broadcast. We're in the middle of the COVID-19 lockdown of 2020, mm-hmm. and uh, not a lot has changed for our family because I'm working from home like I always do, and we're homeschooling our children as we always do. So it really hasn't been much different for us other than not being able to be part of our uh, you know, church activities and you know, homeschool field trips and things like that that we typically do. Uh, but, but other than that, it's just been kind of rolling along. So we, we work together as a family, and my schedule allows a lot more flexibility than uh, than most. So I'm grateful for that. Well, we're grateful for you taking the time with us today. You've been very influential in getting Christian families to educate their own children rather than letting the government do that for them. The website, familyrenewal.org. I was reading in the introduction to the book, Answers for Homeschooling, and really fascinating history on your family, Israel. The first, one of the first families to begin homeschooling in the U.S., um, and that was probably in the late 70s. Uh, you write that uh, your older sister was taken out of kindergarten at that time. That was 1978, and you began uh, your family began a homeschooling adventure. Uh, ten years later, your mom founded the Homeschool Digest, HSD, and I know you edit and write for that now. Tell us a little bit more about your background and your history and your family and why it was so important to move in this direction of teaching your kids at home, teaching your own kids. It's interesting how so many people get into homeschooling for different reasons. You know, there are a lot of probably as many different reasons as there are families that choose it. Now, for our family, back in 1978, my sister had gone into public school in kindergarten and had been tested as reading at a fifth grade level. 
And when she spent a couple of months in public kindergarten, the, the teachers had contacted my mother and said that they thought she was severely learning disabled uh, and was basically unteachable and needed to be put into a special class. Wow. So there's obviously a bit of disparity there if you have a child who can read at a fifth grade level entering kindergarten, and then they're saying she has a learning disability and can't learn. And so my mother came to believe that it really had nothing to do with my sister having an inability to learn. It had everything to do with the teachers not really understanding her and being able to uh, teach to her personality. She was a very introverted child. She was very shy and tended to back away from a lot of the social activities of the class and so forth. And they, they didn't know how to deal with that kind of personality type. And so their solution was to label her and try to put her in a special ed class. So anyway, my mom ended up taking her out of school. And as she didn't know at the time, but because of compulsory attendance laws, the school declared her as being truant and sent a truant officer to the house to inform her that she needed to re-enroll my sister uh, or be taken to court. Wow. And we ended up going to court. And so it was a very long story that I, I do talk about somewhat in the Answers for Homeschooling book. But what what ended up happening was because of my mom's brave stance where she just decided that she knew her daughter better than the school did and thought she could do a better job teaching than the school was doing, she sort of blazed a trail. And we had hundreds of people that wrote to us when, you know, because our story hit the news, right? So, mm, yeah. You know, kind of like local mom faces jail time for teaching kid at home, you know, that <laughs> kind of thing. And so we had people writing to us saying, you know, what are you doing? We want to learn more about this. And so she started this magazine and then she was uh, writing books and speaking on homeschooling back in the late 80s and 90s. And uh, I was one of the earlier homeschool graduates in the homeschooling movement. I, I graduated from homeschooling myself in 1991. And um, because there weren't many people who had been homeschooled and could speak from that side of it, I was invited to come and speak once I had graduated at a lot of conferences where my mom was speaking as a keynote speaker. I was invited to speak as like a panel speaker or a teen track speaker. And that was like 1995. And uh, pretty soon after that, I, I was keynoting conferences myself. I met my wife in 99, and she had been homeschooled in the early days as well. Her family was in Arizona, and they started homeschooling in 1983. And her mom was one of the founders of the homeschooling movement in Arizona. And so we had both been homeschooled, and when we got married, it was kind of a foregone conclusion that we would teach our own children at home. And so far, we have home-educated all 10 of our children, uh, some of them quite young. You know, we, we actually say this, that, that really everybody homeschools, uh, but some people stop homeschooling when their child reaches compulsory attendance school age. Hmm. And so really, you, you, you homeschool from birth, and from the time these children are born, you're teaching them the foundations of life, how to walk and talk and feed yourself and get dressed and how to do your letters and shapes and numbers. And but then some people stop homeschooling uh, because they feel like they're incapable of teaching first grade or whatever. And, you know, it's it's kind of ironic in that in that sense that I meet so many people who say, oh, I just I'm not qualified. Mm -hmm. I don't feel capable. I don't feel competent. I just don't feel like. I can do that. And I sometimes ask them, well, well, what educational system did you go to that left you feeling so incapable, and so <laughs> incompetent, and so unqualified that you can't even teach your own child? And are you sure that you want to perpetuate that to the next generation to where your children are going to grow up and feel incapable and unqualified and incompetent to teach their children? At some point, don't you want to get off this train and have your children in an educational system that empowers them, yes. makes them feel like they are capable to be able to teach the next generation. Israel Wayne, author, speaker, radio host, um, thank you so much uh, for again for being on the program. Um, we might have a little short or something in the connection here, so I'm not sure if it's on our end or your end, so um, we'll have to just keep uh, an eye on that. Your family was featured on Time Magazine. Uh, I believe on the cover, right, in 2001. Um, have you gotten a lot of resistance from the powers that be, the National Education Association, public schools, government, for 
being so influential in the homeschool movement? Well, you know, the powers that be always want to have children within the institution, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of it is ideological. They believe that it really is best for a child to learn in a governmental, governmentally controlled institutional setting. But it also, there's a lot of uh, motivation that's based on finances. And nationally, the average student in America is worth about $12,000 per head per year to have them in a, a brick-and-mortar school. Wow. And so every family that takes their child out of a government school environment costs the system $12,000. And so the schools want that money. They want that revenue. And so as soon as you start to inter- interfere or impede with their ability to kind of have a uh, an educational monopoly, then there are certain people within that structure who, who take it quite personally and can get pretty aggressive. So there have been times over the years, yes, where – uh, certain individuals within those systems have, uh, you know, have have been somewhat aggressive towards the work of of the homeschooling community uh, and the leadership thereof. I think there are some people who just, you know, they really don't see it as being anything other than just the normal way that children should be educated, you know, within an institutional government school model. And, and so, from their viewpoint, like they're not ideologues. They just feel like, well, this is what's best for children. And, and you know, the, the parents can't possibly know how to best raise their own children. They need to be raised by the state. And they're very sincere about that. Like, they're not bad people. That's just their worldview. It's just how they see it. And uh, part of what we want to do is to try to educate them to the fact that in human history, parents have always taught their children at home. Exactly. You, know, you go back 6,000 years of human history parents teaching their children was the norm. It really wasn't until almost the time of the Civil War that we introduced the idea of government raising children and educating children. Before that, it was a radical concept that almost no one gave any credence to. Mm-hmm. So this, this government institutional school model is a very new, very novel, and very experimental approach to education in the grand scheme of things historically. Homeschooling is not some new novel thing that's untested and untried. It's what people have always done throughout all history. Exactly. So we, we try to educate people and, and give them the broader perspective of it. About 100 years ago was when homeschooling—I'm I'm, sorry—the pu- public school system in America was instituted as compulsory, compulsory attendance. Um, families had to start sending their kids to the government about 100 years ago. Um, and I know it was— illegal for a time to homeschool? I mean, maybe I missed it. I'm not sure if you mentioned it earlier. When did homeschooling become uh, allowed or legal across the country? It started, the modern-day homeschooling movement really started in 1983, and it did not become legal in every state until the mid-1990s. That's, that's how recent That's amazing. Is. That's astounding. And 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 really, even Christian schools, a lot of people don't know this, but in the 1970s, there were pastors in Nebraska and Kansas and other places who were being handcuffed and hauled off to jail, and their churches were chained and padlocked wow. because they were teaching students not just Sunday school in the Sunday school rooms on Sunday, but they began to teach math and history and science Monday through Friday in those same Sunday school rooms. And because of compulsory attendance laws, the government had so locked down a monopoly from 1900 that even in the 1970s, which many of us were alive at that time, uh, we just you know don't know the history of education very well. Um, but churches were actually pr- properties were were locked, and pastors were arrested and hauled to jail just for wanting to give their kids a Christian education. And so we're not talking about communist China or communist Russia. You know, this is the the you know stars and stripes right yes. the land of the free and the home of the brave where pastors are being arrested just for wanting to give their kids christian education in the 1970s and then homeschoolers faced that throughout the 1980s a lot of homeschoolers were faced with losing their kids and having uh their parental rights terminated and they had to go to court to fight just to be able to teach their own kids at home a lot of wow. people don't know the history 
of homeschooling or Christian education. And that's one of the reasons we're having you on. We've been we've talked to uh, Heidi St. John, uh, Sam Sorbo, uh, Elizabeth Johnston, many others, and uh, Kathy Barnett. We're we're having you on because for, you've got some outstanding books, not only about homeschooling but about defending the Christian faith. You write a lot about the Christian worldview, and again, uh, for our listeners, the website familyrenewal.org. Um, in your book, the chapter one in Answers for Homeschooling, it says an Amish man named uh, Jonas Yoder eventually won a court case in 1972, Wisconsin versus Yoder. So we're in Wisconsin. Well, that kind of piques our interest. It allowed the Amish communities to homeschool their kids. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the Amish uh, decided to start small parochial schools, which are usually about K through 8, usually have one teacher in a one-room schoolhouse. And basically all they were trying to do was to get back to the model that existed prior to the Civil War. There was this guy named Horace Mann in Massachusetts who was a Unitarian. He was a God-hater, and he wanted to eradicate Christianity from American civilization. And he believed the best way to do that was to create compulsory attendance, government-run, government-funded schools, and then slowly remove every vestige of Christianity from those schools over time. Mm. And he believed that if that happened, people would embrace a kind of utopian vision of love and peace and morality and goodness and kindness apart from God. Mm. Because that's as a Unitarian, that was his worldview, was that we don't need God to be good, we right. can just be good on our own. And so he had instituted the first compulsory attendance laws as early as 1852 in Massachusetts, and then it took other states up until about 1900 to implement it, depending on where you were. But prior to that time, if you go back to the colonial era, you had these common schools that were little, little cottage schools, really. They were parent-directed, parent-controlled, parent-funded, the parents can picked out the curriculum, and they would hire a teacher or a tutor, like, you know, the Little House on the Prairie days, or, mm -hmm. or the kinds of schools Noah Webster taught in. Uh. And the Amish just wanted to return to that, you know, to have their own little community school, K through 8, with one teacher, with a, a, a Christian curriculum that they could pick out themselves that was not a, a government-written, uh, government-enforced, government-standardized curriculum. And by law, they couldn't do that. They didn't have the ability, but this Jonas Yoder guy just basically said, I will not send my kids to an anti-Christian government school. And they said, well, you have to. It's the law. And he said, I don't have to, and I won't. Mm -hmm. And ended up fighting it in court, lost every battle uh, all the way through uh, up to the Supreme Court, and then finally won, thank God, at the Supreme Court level. So the Amish started their parochial schools, and... Um, so homeschooling movement was able to use that particular court case, and then and then the one the Catholics won in 1925, which is called Pierce versus Society of Sisters. They were able to because they started their schools much earlier and exempted out of compulsory attendance. Uh, the Protestants just lagged way way behind on that, uh, but but the uh, the homeschoolers were able to use those laws that the Amish and the Catholics had implemented. Uh, and then the, the laws that uh, were put into place on the Christian schools, like in the 1970s and so forth, to, to then have legal precedent for building a case for them to be able to teach their own children with a Christian education at home. And that, that started in 1983, where Homeschool Legal Defense Association with Michael Ferris was founded, and then about 26 different state organizations founded. And today, almost every state has a Christian state homeschooling association that helps to... Uh, oversee and watch out for bad legislation and keep homeschooling safe and legal in those in those states. Uh, we've got just a minute before we need to take a break, but you brought up Noah Webster, and I'm thinking, as you were speaking, uh, I was thinking Noah Webster, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, you can go on all down the list. What would they think of what happened in a century ago when in America the government said, you have no right to homeschool your kids. Can you imagine what our founders and what these some of these great men of God who believed in the Bible, believed in the Christian worldview, and wanted to teach their own kids? Imagine what they would think. Oh, they were most of them were homeschooled. <laughs> they, you know, when John Adams was a French ambassador, he took John Quincy Adams uh, over to France with him, 
and homeschool him when he was spending time over there in France. I wow. mean, they just could. I don't think most of them could have conceived. Yeah. of how bad the educational system would become. Mm. We are speaking with Israel Wayne, an author and conference speaker, director of Family Renewal. The book we're talking about today, uh, Answers for Homeschooling, Top 25 Questions Critics Ask. Much more with Israel Wayne when we come back. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. Maybe one day we'll get a webcam in the studio. I was speaking with our guest, Israel Wayne, off the air. Yeah, Spike says, we don't want a webcam in here. Um, and I think, Israel, we need to talk a little bit about what our, let the people in on our discussion during the break and that the um, massive education system in America, it, it employs a lot of people. Uh, the unions are absolutely pushing homeschooling. I mean, I'm sorry, pushing public schools. And it's such a big machine now. But year after year, the studies that have been done indicate that they are failing. I mean, some kids are coming out with eighth grade, uh, eighth grade reading levels, and, and they're so behind. The U.S. now is so far behind many other countries that we might even considered uh, third world countries, and the U.S. is way behind. And... The answer from the left is always throw more money at the education right. system. Throw more money. Well, it doesn't seem to help the kids, does it? If you look at a chart from, say, 1950, and you look at literacy, literacy has, according to official studies, flatlined since about 1970. It's gone down since the 50s. So since about 1970, they say it's flatlined. Whereas spending in government education has has raised or grown exponentially. So you just see this line that shoots up through the roof exponentially in terms of spending, but literacy has has flatlined according to official reports. What's deceptive about the flatline is that over the past fifty years, the government educational system has dumbed down the standards so often and so frequently just to maintain the flat line that it looks as though literacy rates are the same and it's the same percentage of students that are reading at the state's level of proficiency. But the state's level of proficiency is radically low compared to what it was. If you get a school textbook, say a fifth grade reader from uh, the late 1800s and you try to read it today, most adults can't even read it, hmm. uh, a fifth-grade reader from, from the late 1800s, right. because we've, we've so dumbed down the curriculum. So it's, it's misleading and deceptive. But you're right. The answer is always, well, if we just had more money, we could fix this problem. Yeah. But as we've seen, the, the money is being spent exponentially, and the standards continue to, to be dropped, and, and uh, literacy and educational performance continues to become weaker. Uh, Israel, we're talking a lot about education and actually teaching um, and what the kids learn and the, and the literacy uh, levels and things like that. We haven't really talked a lot about morality. This is a big reason why a lot of Christian parents have pulled their kids out of the system because it is it has now come to the point, and again, our, the, our founders, uh, you know, uh, Noah Webster and Washington Adams, all these guys, they would flip if they saw the hostility toward Christians and the Christian worldview in our system today in America that's teaching Christian kids, because a lot of Christian kids go to the government schools. Would you talk a little bit about the problems with morality, whether it's gender, uh, whether it's that confusion or the, the lack of um, intelligent design, talks about creation? They're, they're teaching evolution uh, I'm not sure if they're even teaching that as a theory, by the way, but talk about morality and the problems there. Well, it's interesting, again, not knowing the history of the government school system, a lot of people think that basically the government schools were founded as Christian schools, and then somewhere around the 1960s they started to become liberal, and then today they're not the best. But in fact, the founders of the government school system, as far back as Horace Mann in 1852, they, had, they created the government school system to eradicate Christianity from America. That was their intended goal. And they weren't silent about it. They weren't 
covert about it. They weren't hidden about it. It's not conspiracy theory. If you read their actual writings, the books that they wrote and the things that they said, they were explicit that that was their goal, was to remove Christianity. Horace Mann, again, a Unitarian Mm -hmm. God-hater, was raised in a staunch uh, Christian home, and he rejected Christianity, and he wanted to see Christianity removed from society. John Dewey, who is the most famous educator in America, he was a teacher of teachers at Columbia University um, and, and University of Chicago, he, in the 1930s, started uh, this whole program in the 1930s to try, at Teachers College, Columbia University, to try to institute a program to make America a socialist nation. He was an atheist. He was a Marxist. He was a signer of the first Humanist Manifesto. He hated God. He hated Christianity. And he wanted to see Christianity eradicated from America. And they believed that the schools were going to be their new atheist church and that they would, they would control society and they would control the worldview of society if they controlled the schools. And 85% of all evangelical Christians send their children to government schools that were created by people who said, our purpose is to destroy Christianity in America and to create a socialist nation. Wow. And, and this, so there's no surprise yeah. that we've ended up there, because that was why they were created. That's what the founders said they were creating the schools for. Mm-hmm. And boy, did uh, some of these things take root. And sadly, we just look back at the 1960s when prayer and the Bible and, and uh, you know, teaching, you know, talking about Jesus or whatever, everything, the Ten Commandments, everything else was taken out of schools. We think, oh, it started in the 60s. The It had to be decades earlier that the ground was prepped for those types of court decisions and those types of um, things taking out of the schools, God, Christianity, the Bible. So as you said, I completely agree. It didn't suddenly happen in the uh, <laughs> rebellious uh, 1960s. Uh, Israel, on in your book, Answers for Homeschooling, I, I love the fact that you write uh, very simply um, in one of the chapters, what are the essentials of teaching? And you said, your mother informed me that her responsibility to me was to, three things, three things. Number one, teach me how to read. Teach me how to think and reason. Teach me how to study and learn. Um, are these three pillars, so to speak, uh, things that, that you believe are foundational for kids to be able to uh, think for themselves and have uh, a solid education and future? Absolutely. I mean, my mom was homeschooling six children as a single parent, and she dropped out of high school in ninth grade. Oh, my goodness. So think about this. Try homeschooling in the 1980s when it's against the law. (laughs) There is almost no homeschool support. There are no homeschooling, you know, almost no one is homeschool friendly at that time. And you, you didn't even finish ninth grade yourself. How do you homeschool as a single parent if you didn't even go through high school? And what she told me was my responsibility to you is not to teach you everything that can be known in the universe, because you'll forget that anyway. I mean, most people forget what they learned in school. She said, you don't have to cram every bit of knowledge, every, every data bit into your brain and try to remember it forever. What you have to know is you have to know how to read, you have to know how to think, and how to, and how to learn. And if you know how to do those three things, you can teach yourself. So it's kind of that old Chinese proverb of giving a man a fish or teaching him how to fish, Hmm. she was more concerned about teaching me the tools of learning. And then she said, you can learn anything you want to know in life if you know how to read, how to reason, and how to study. Very wise mom. (laughs) You're you're very Very blessed. Um, Sam Sorbo, uh, when she was on the show last week, uh, she said, evidently she went to Duke University and graduated from Duke. And yet she said in the early years of bringing up her kids, she said she didn't feel qualified to teach her kids at home. She had a a degree from a major university. Tell us why this is so common. It's because it's ingrained in children in the government school system that only government experts are qualified to teach children. Mm. We're increasingly being told that only government experts are qualified to raise our children. We're being told that we need to drop them off in government institutions right after they're born because parents are inept and they're unqualified 
and they will ruin their child. And the only way to protect the child from the parents is to get them away from the parents into a government institution. And parents hear this growing up in schools, uh, and they come away with this mentality, this worldview, this perspective, even if they don't think about it cognitively, it's there. They say, well, I'm just a parent. I'm not a certified teacher. I can't possibly give my child a, a good education. I don't know how to prepare them for life. Well, those are lies. Hmm. God gave the children to you. God can, didn't give your children to the state. He didn't give them to a government institution. He gave them to you, and he has qualified us. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so you say, well, you know, I would have to do some study. I'd have to do some, some reading and some some refreshing in my own mind to be able to teach somebody. Well, you know what? That's actually healthy. And learning alongside your children uh, is a wonderful benefit of homeschooling because you get to fill in your own educational gaps. Parents are always concerned that the, I don't want my child to have educational gaps. Well, we have educational gaps regardless of what educational system we went through. <laughs> and people who go through public schools have tons of educational gaps. And the way to fix that is just to continue to be a lifelong learner mm. and to learn alongside your child. I, just quickly, I talked to one public school teacher who told me, he said, my goal is to try to stay one week ahead of my student, who's a math <laughs> teacher. He said, I don't remember this stuff. He said, I don't use it every day. I don't remember it. So he said, I just try to stay one week ahead of my, my class. Well, a parent can do that. You just have to stay a little bit ahead of your class and, or learn along with them. Uh, a lot of us who have been talking about this for years and researching um, just the whole system and the, the divide and the talking points, the narrative and what the uh, left believes. Um, what would you say is wrong with the idea that it takes a village to raise uh, a child or to raise children? Right. Well, you know, God did create us to be in community. Mm -hmm. And so as Christians, we don't throw out the concept of community but the biblical concept of community is that our, our church family, our extended family, our relatives and friends, they come along and support what we as parents are seeking to do in the preparation of our child for life. So they are a supplemental resource. But the Marxist-Leninist-Socialist worldview wants to replace parents. And they want parents to be removed from the equation as being the most influential force in their child's life. And so the community then, and by that they mean the state, the community <laughs> then becomes the, uh, the replacement for the parents. And that's mm -hmm. a very different concept than healthy community. It's abdication, yes. where parents are just giving up their children to the state. Uh, we believe that, that healthy community is a positive thing. But it only supports and supplements what the parents themselves are always doing. It should never seek to replace it. Very important distinction. Thank you. Uh, we've got about uh, five, six minutes left with Israel Wayne. And before we've got another book coming out next month. But before we get to that, one more question. Um, a lot of Christian parents believe that their kids need to be salt and light in the public schools. Um, when here's the interesting thing that many adults aren't even acting like that out in our culture, out in the world, and we're expecting our, our kids to go into a very hostile system. How can what would you say to these parents that say, "Well, I want my kids to maybe influence the public schools for Jesus, be light and salt." Yeah, well, I say if that's a good theory, then we should have some scientific, some anecdotal, some. Uh, you know, some evidence that indicates that that's effective. <laughs> and so you go back and look at the last 40 years. That's been the mantra of the Christian church, send mm -hmm. our kids to be missionaries and evangelists in the public schools. Right. But do you, if I ask parents anywhere, do you think Christian, or do you think that the public schools are more Christian now than they were in 1970? Nobody thinks they're more Christian. Nobody thinks that this vast evangelistic program is working even though 85% of all church youth are in these government school systems, supposedly being missionaries. But 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. And Proverbs 13.20 says, If you walk with wise people, you'll become wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. So the social environment has more of an impact on corrupting Christian youth than Christian youth are having in evangelizing their friends to the gospel. We don't send ill-equipped 
soldiers into military that have never been through boot camp, never been through basic training, never don't have adequate weapons. We don't send them into a war zone. We wait until they're prepared, until they're trained, until they're equipped. But we're sending five, six-year-olds into a war zone uh, that they're just not equipped for. The peer group is against them. The 40-year-old teacher's against them. They don't have any basic understanding of theology or apologetics. They don't know how to defend their faith. They're just being obliterated. We, mm-hmm. we have 85% of, of, of church youth do not have a biblical worldview, and 70% of them are leaving the church. It's just not working. Every, every metric that we could gauge it by shows that that philosophy has flat failed, phenomenally failed. There are no metrics anywhere that show that it works. Exactly. So if it was a good theory, it would work. It just doesn't work. Okay, everybody that's listening right now, we all know someone, a Christian, that, that says, hey, kids, Christian kids need to be in the public schools to be salt and light. What Israel just shared, which was very, very um, succinct, by the way, and please share this part of the podcast with them. Please go back and listen to what he just explained. By every standard, by every metric, that idea is failing of young children who are just trying, they just want to be liked, they want to have friends, they're not going to be openly blatant Christians and try to share the gospel and, and be the salt and light that you would think we all need to be in the public school system. Israel, I, I'm sorry, I didn't get to your new book. Can can you hold hold on with us a little bit longer? Absolutely. Okay, thank you so much. I hate to put you on the spot like that, but before we take a break, two other questions I'm, I'm going to combine into one. Um, are homeschooled students properly socialized, and won't these kids— educated at home, won't they miss out on, like, sports, you know, prom, band, and other things? It's interesting. There was a study that was done back in 2007 by the National Home Education Research Institute with Dr. Brian Ray, and he did a survey of 8,000 homeschooled students across America who had been homeschooled for seven years or more, and he found that in every way that we would evaluate whether someone is an engaged, active good citizen contributing positively to their communities, homeschoolers were better engaged socially than public school and privately schooled counterparts. So think about that. If you want your kids to be well-adjusted and well-engaged socially as adults, you actually want to homeschool them, not send them to private school or public school, if you follow the research. Mm -hmm. And I talk about that again more yes. in the Answers for Homeschooling book. But, but homeschool students are better socialized and better adjusted as youth than students who grow up in a classroom where they only meet with people their own age. That's not the real world. It is not a normal environment. You never go to work and, like, work in a cubicle where everyone else on your floor is 30 years old. Hmm. That doesn't happen. And so learning how to socialize with a wide array of people provides a better socialization experience, which is what homeschooling provides. So homeschoolers uh, are, are more likely to give money to political causes. They're more likely to vote. They're more likely to, uh, to donate time to charity and to community service. They're more likely to, uh, you know, have a college degree by percentage, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, they're less likely to be arrested. It's just on and on and on. Homeschoolers uh, excel socially as adults. Let's continue this when we come back from break. We are speaking with Israel Wayne, and the website is Chris, I'm sorry, familyrenewal.org. And um, we are going to talk a whole lot more. We're, we're finishing up this book, Answers for Homeschooling, Top 25 Questions Critics Ask. And Israel's got a brand new book next month coming out that we're going to talk about when we come back on Stand Up For The Truth. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. We're on the line with author and conference speaker and director of Family Renewal, Israel Wayne, and we're setting aside this book now, Answers for Homeschooling, 25 questions, top 25 questions critics ask. We'll put that link in today's podcast notes. He's got a new book coming out next month, but before we mention that, I wanted to ask you, Israel, during this opportunity here, uh, during the coronavirus shutdown, quarantine, whatever you want to call it. By the way, it's interesting that they're, it, it's quarantining healthy people, not sick people, uh, in a way, if you look at it that way. But over at Freedom Project Academy, Dr. Duke Pesta has been instrumental in raising awareness about the massive machine and in the public school system and on Common Core when that came into play the state standards, and which are still in the school, by the way. They might be named something else. But he was saying in the 
my friends over at Freedom Project Academy say when some people send their kids over there, they're not up to speed because homeschoolers are typically ahead in their education, and whether that be literacy uh, in reading or, or the level of math. Can you talk to me about maybe some of the concerns that some Christian parents might have making that transition? How can that be smoother knowing that the public school system is generally behind where a lot of the homeschool education is? Well, it's very true. I mean, from the 1980s, every study that's been done on academics and homeschooling has shown that homeschoolers typically score about 30 percentile higher than their public school counterparts. So he's absolutely right about that. I think a lot of people who are being forced to do school at home now may be feeling frustrated by it, and they may be thinking, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. You know, we're doing this at home, and I don't know that I would want to do this full time. I just would like to raise a couple of issues for you to consider. One of the issues is that the textbooks that you're using, besides being you know, very blatantly promoting a leftist progressive worldview and, and full of common core nonsense and all that, beyond the content and evolution and humanism and socialism and all that, is that they're designed for the classroom. And so they're not efficient. The idea is we have to spend an hour on math for no good reason other than that our class is going to take that long. So you have a lot of waste and inefficiency mm. in the textbooks. People who choose privately funded homeschooling and pick their own curriculum, we have better curriculum than the public schools do. We have better resources than they have. And most of it is made for homeschoolers and for a homeschool schedule. The average homeschool student spends about three or four hours on academics, and that's it, and they're done for the day. And it's not because they're doing less. It's just because they're not subjected to the tedium hmm. of these these textbooks that are designed for the classroom just to uh, babysit. And that really is what's happening to, for a great extent within the classroom. And that's why so many kids are bored, and it's why they're labeled as ADD and given Ritalin and so on, is they're just bored out of their mind because they're <laughs> being forced, they're incarcerated in this classroom. They can't move, they can't, they can't even use the restroom without raising their hand. I mean, it's just frustrating, and students um, don't thrive in that environment. But if you move into a privately funded a homeschool environment, you get to pick your own curriculum, you pick your own hours, you have all kinds of flexibility. The experience is vastly different than what you're doing right now if you're doing public school at home. So I just want to point that out, that mm -hmm. it may take you a little while to study and to transition, but I think you'll find that the homeschooling experience is going to be vastly more positive for you. This is a very interesting season we're in now in that um, um, a lot of parents are now seeing the importance of them spending time with their kids and teaching them instead of relying yeah. on the schools. Um, do you know uh, if the schools are caught up in sending kids? Now, they're, are they organized in sending kids the curriculum that they would have been uh, learning in the public schools? Are they trying to do that, or is there still uh, a little bit of chaos there? It's chaos. You know, in Michigan, and every state's different, but in Michigan where I live— they they had decided that what they were going to do was they were going to have the students do an online curriculum at home, and then they just weren't going to count any of it towards their grade, and they were going to have to make it all up in the summer. Well, so many parents and teachers threw a fit about that because basically, you know, we're teaching all of this time during the school year, and then we got to teach it all again uh, in the summertime and so forth. So that wasn't workable. So then they went 180 degrees the other direction and basically said, okay, uh, we're still going to try to teach to the end of the year online, but, but whether you excel or don't excel, whether you do any of the work or don't do any of the work, everybody passes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> How yeah. does that work? So basically, <laughs> if, if, you, if you're going to graduate this year, you graduate. If you're in 10th grade, next year you go to 11th grade, just everybody gets a free pass into the next grade. And you have these months that students are supposed to do, but – whether they do it or don't do it, as long as they're on target to graduate today or to move to the next class today, they will move to the next class regardless. So, so it's really like everything we're doing here from the teacher standpoint and the student standpoint is irrelevant. Wow. And really that's just a mass inefficiency of everything the government does on display in the educational model. Oh, my goodness. 
Um, we've got just about five minutes left, and thank you for allowing us to extend this interview. It's such an important topic, and you've got a new book coming out next month. And people can pre-order it, by the way. Is, can they go to familyrenewal.org and pre-order this? Yes, they can. If they go to familyrenewal.org forward slash store and search for Raising Them Up, Parenting for Christians, they can pre-order that. If they order it from my site, it's actually a little cheaper than Amazon, and I will send them a personally signed copy. Awesome. Uh, but this new book, uh, Raising Them Up, isn't homeschooling at all. It's just on the big picture of Christian parenting, how to disciple your kids, how to give your kids a biblical worldview, how to, as best as we are, best as we are capable, to raise them in the Christian faith and protect them from this mass fallout that we're seeing within the evangelical church. So it's Parenting for Christians, Raising Them Up. It's um, coming out next month, which, my goodness, is just a couple weeks, it seems. will be in May, about uh, two and a half weeks. Um, Israel, can you give us—I'm looking at the uh, table of contents, and there are some very interesting chapter titles. Um, the Power of Influence— uh, losing a generation, the battle for the family. But I know there's some things about discipline, um, gospel-centered parenting, uh, child discipline. Can you just give us a couple bullet points of what you're trying to get across as far as um, you know the, the foundation of this book and raising godly kids at home? Yeah, one of the things I talk about in Influence is that if, if parents sometimes, when their children turn 15, 16 years old, 17, they wonder why their kids don't listen to them, why their kids don't respect them, uh, why their kids have rejected all of their values. They don't care what the parents think anymore. They only care what their friends and peers think. And they think, what happened? What went wrong? How did we lose our kids? But influence is determined by two primary factors. The first and most important is time. Whoever spends the most time with your kids, not quality time, quantity time, mm. will, will have the most influence in their life. Quantity so time. if you want to have the most influence in your child's life, you need to spend more time with your child than anybody else in their life. And again, 85 percent, well, actually only 4 percent of, of American Christian parents take full responsibility for the education of their child. 96 percent send them outside the home for other people to educate them. So by default, they are simply not going to be the most influential people in their child's life in most cases. So, wow. so time is number one. And then number two is, is affirmation. So you have to spend more time with your child than anyone else, and you have to encourage them and inspire them and build them up and, and invest in them in such a way that your child believes that you are for them and that you are motivated not by what's best for you, but what's best for them. And if your child believes that you have their best interests at heart and you've proven that and demonstrated that to them over time, then you're going to have influence in their life. But when they're spending seven and a half hours a day in school and then they come home and they spend seven and a half hours a day after school in multimedia, that's 15 hours a day. And the average dad is spending 23 minutes a day with his child. You put that on a scale, there's no way that a dad can ever be the primary influence in his child's life when he's got 15 hours of anti-Christian indoctrination on mm. one side and 23 minutes on the other. You'll never be able to win that game. When you put it that way, it's incredibly sobering to hear the amount of time a mom or the amount of time a child's dad spends with them in one day. And we know that for kids that are of school age, um, 40 hours a week away from their family, yeah. being influenced by whatever curriculum is coming down the pike from the uh, National Education Association. And at, one thing you left out, you, cl climate change, environmentalism, that is a worldview that uh, elevates nature and everything around us and not human beings, not create, people created in the image of God. Um, could you remind us, what was that statistic you said about the percentage of parents who are um, homeschooling versus the ones who are sending them to the public schools? It's only 4% of American Christians Four? homeschool their kids. 4 4%. Oh, my goodness. 4%. I thought it was higher than that. No. And, and so 96% are sending them to some form of school. Wow. That's a, I don't know why I should, I'm surprised at that, but I should uh, understand that um, this is where we are as a country, and we, we wonder. And as you mentioned, um, 
the studies have been done now in the eight in the late 1980s, I believe nineties. Uh, we said that uh, the the stats were showing Barna and whatever else that kids were leaving their Christian faith after one year of college. But today, a couple decades later, now we are saying that kids are starting to doubt their Christian faith in middle school. So by the time they get to high school, they're gone. I think Ken Ham wrote yeah. a book called Already Gone, and even since that, yeah. the stats have been changed. One more minute. Could you wrap it up? Uh, Israel Wayne, the author of Raising Them Up, Parenting for Christians and Answers for Homeschooling, Top 25 Questions Critics Ask. Israel, your final thoughts. So if we don't want our child to be that statistic of 70% leaving the faith before high school graduation and then an additional 70% of those leaving their faith in their freshman year of college, we don't want that to be our statistic. We're going to have to make radical changes to our entire lifestyle. Hmm. Not little modulations, but radical changes to our entire lifestyle. Uh, raising them up, parenting for Christians, answers for homeschooling, education, does God have an opinion? Uh, these books are books that I think will fundamentally and foundationally change the way people think about raising their kids. And I hope they'll go to our website, Family Renewal. Dot org and uh, and buy these resources. And friends, share this podcast. It was such a great opportunity to spend time with you today, Israel Wayne. God bless you, brother. Keep fighting the good fight of faith. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, when we come back, we'll tell you about the guests the rest of this week. Stand Up For The Truth, a ministry of Lakeshore Communications Incorporated. Keep the discussion going on social media. Stand Up WI on Facebook and Twitter. Now, we wrap up today's Stand Up For The Truth. Got questions? Tomorrow, the uh, CEO, the president of gotquestions.org, Shay Hoodman, will be our guest. And if you have any question at all about anything related to the Bible, to spirituality, to any question at all, send it to me and I'll ask him tomorrow. Email comments at standupforthetruth.com. Comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Shea Hoodman, Got Questions, tomorrow, right here. Um, Wednesday, Rebecca Kiesling, uh, Save the One. Um, she, of course, uh, well, you might not remember, but she was a product of rape. Her mother was raped, decided to have the baby, and Rebecca was born. Praise God. Um, uh, Thursday, John Haller, an important prophecy update. We're talking about the coronavirus, a police state, Bible prophecy, and all the rest. And then, God willing, we'll get to some news and views and commentary on so many headlines. I've got a stack of them here and there, just getting more and more for this Friday. So uh, I will do that with Crash as we investigate the recent news and headlines and give you that Christian perspective as we always try to do. But we want to point you to the Word of God that's where the ultimate truth is, and we form our worldview from that, right? Thank you so much for listening. God bless you, and keep speaking the truth about things that matter.